strictly waves With Bert and Hayes We lift the weights and go on dates And we are mates that educate and conversate And it's our podcast! Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Guys, welcome to Weekly Weights. It's episode, is it 87? I think it's going to be 87. I believe it's 87, Will. And we're joined by Dan Gadarsi. Um, Dan is a physiotherapist. He's working out of Melbourne Strength Culture currently. And I believe, can you tell me if this is correct, you now have a formal title within Powerlifting Australia as well? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, boys. Um, I guess, yeah, there's a bit more of a formal title now, but without the actual title part, but... Now myself and Manjot are the physios for Powerlifting Australia. We've been building up that last year, 2019, and that's been very well received. And we're looking on uh, expanding upon that this year, moving into 2020. Okay, so Dan's obviously very well versed in physiotherapy and the injury management needs and things of powerlifters. Um, what were your what was your initial study like? What are your qualifications? What's your history and work? So the listeners have an idea about you. Yep. So initially I started off um, my journey. I always knew I was heading towards physiotherapy. Um, I went and did a bachelor of biomedicine at Melbourne university, which was trash. So I swapped halfway through into science and that was much better. During this time, I also did my cert three, four in fitness so I could start coaching some people, which I did sort of on the side privately uh, to get some more practical experience alongside my studies. Then I did an honours year in research and that then led me into my Doctor of Physiotherapy at Bond University, which was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed that starting up in the Gold Coast. And during that time as well, I also ticked off my uh, level one ASCA strength and conditioning and at the time was also continuing doing some private work with athletes in terms of coaching and also powerlifting coaching. And that's sort of in a nutshell led me to here. Um, this is probably something we'll unpack as we talk further, but I'm curious yeah. because in my experience, studying dietetics and doing some work as a dietitian began to inform how I spoke to people in my coaching relationships once I began reflecting on it. And the reverse has been true as well. My experience in coaching has influenced how I talk to people about nutrition. Do you find that there's been a lot of crossover for yourself in those two fields in the way in which you sort of teach rehab or coach people in rehab as opposed to for performance? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, they're all professions where you're dealing and working with people. And whenever you're working with people, communication is absolutely critical. Um, so it's quite helpful that at the start of my career I was able to do some PT work in SNC before I dived into physiotherapy as well as working as a, a swimming instructor so I already had a bit of a base skill in communications and that crossed over really nicely um, from more of a performance aspect into a rehab setting because at the end of the day it's about relating to the individuals getting that buy-in so that they're confident in what your plan is and what you're both sort of working towards getting out of the, the program, whether it be in a performance or rehab setting. And then through that, uh, fostering that relationship, you're building that, that confidence and self-efficacy, which ultimately leads to a, a better outcome, regardless of the field that you're working in. Cool. So there's two main topics that we want to cover with Dan today. 
The first is the broad umbrella field of pain. You know, what it is, why we experience it, what we should do about it. And then second, which is related to that, is the experiences which everyone here can relate to of tightness or inhibition in muscle groups and you know the role of activation exercises and what it means to actually feel or control muscle activation as well. So we want to basically start with pain and then expand that talk into mobility and motor control generally. So Dan, first question, pain. More and more um, for people who are involved in sort of the evidence-based social media sphere, you're seeing people making noise about how structure and pain aren't necessarily related. Um, can you unpack this idea that structure doesn't dictate pain and you know what it actually means in practical terms? Absolutely. It's certainly um, a very hot topic at the moment. Um, I'm sure you guys as well would have plenty of people coming to you asking questions about you know, oh, you know, there must be something wrong with me because I'm feeling pain. But certainly where all the research is at the moment is that there doesn't have to be structural damage to equal pain. And this sort of stemmed, I think, all the way back even to like the 1960s. There was some pretty fascinating research back then that was starting to like steer the ship in terms of where research was going towards this idea that there doesn't have to be something physical uh, like structural or trauma-related to cause pain. Um, and this has led to more recent studies where with the development of medical technology, particularly the MRI, that becoming a lot cheaper and more readily accessible, they've been able to do studies. And a, a classic one is where they've taken an MRI of about a 1,000 or so uh, people's backs who don't have any back pain. So these are people who've never had back pain in their life and they decided, well, let's, let's have a look and see what the structure of your, your back looks like on an MRI. Because following the old sort of belief of if there has to be structural damage to equal pain, then the reverse sort of must be true that these people without any back pain ever in their lives, they probably have perfect looking spines. Um, but instead of that, what they found is that these people had probably horrific looking spines um, compared to what textbook uh, perfect looking spine should be where there was lots of disc bulges and joint degenerations and um, like degenerative disc disease and all these like horrible, horrific sounding medical terms that can put fear into people and make them expect to have pain. But these people never had pain in their life. And what's interesting as well is every decade that you live, it's a 10% increase that you're going to find a lot of these different things. So uh, even people in their sort of their, their early 20s will have like a 20 to 30% chance of having disc bulges and, and disc related, like not, not issues, but what they thought were issues. But it turns out this is all just a normal part of aging. The um, biggest driver of this actually is, uh, does seem to more so be a genetic factor um, rather than just being a, like an occupational related thing, which a lot of people used to think was also the case in the sense that, well, manual workers, surely they, they lift things and move things and twist and bend all the time every day. Surely their backs are a lot worse off than um, you know a desk worker who's just sitting there, in theory, sort of protecting the spine or, or not loading it in any harmful way. Um, but that wasn't the case. It was sort of universal that just as as we age, like we get wrinkles on our skin, uh, we get these different changes and things in our spine, and it doesn't doesn't have to equal pain. So um, it's just really quite interesting. So, so following on from that, if we say that you know structural abnormalities in the spine in this instance don't necessarily equal pain 
Would it still be yep. true that a structural abnormality is necessary but not sufficient for you to experience pain? Or can we have can we experience pain in the absence of any injury? That's a fantastic question. And basically, yes, you can experience pain without any structural uh, damage or defect whatsoever. Uh, there's a, a classic example of that, I suppose, is like phantom limb pain. I know it's not quite like perfect. There's no damage. Obviously, they've had some kind of uh, limb removed or something like that previously. But in phantom limb pain, you can experience pain where your hand used to be. Now, obviously, your hand's no longer there for it in, in this example, but you can still experience very real uh, visceral pain that can be quite debilitating, even though you've got no structural driver there of, of that pain. Um, also as well, uh, just uh, emotionally, I suppose, uh, emotional drivers can actually drive an experience of pain. Um, and that doesn't mean that there has to be a structural uh, defect there to stem it either. Um, it's a little bit harder to give examples of that because it's a bit more of an abstract concept. Um, uh, one that, that comes to mind, one that comes to mind for me always. So when we speak in the other direction, people talk about how you can have horrible damage and not experience pain. And a classic example might be when somebody is in a car accident, breaks a leg, doesn't experience pain because they're so focused on crawling away from the wreckage that it takes, you know, a few minutes and, you know, shock to pass and them to be in a safe zone for them to realize their legs hurt. But if we go in the other direction, pretty much everyone um, can think of either doing this as a child or seeing a child like fall over on grass, have absolutely nothing wrong with them, but they get up and they start crying. And then, you know, mum comes over and kisses it better and the kid stops crying. And so it's an entirely emotional response to something that's happened um, that's, you know, trying to obviously get them to like get them attention or something, but there's no actual exactly. structural damage occurring there. Right? No, that's exactly right. And it's, I suppose that where it just becomes a bit more abstract is uh, when adults try and relate to that, they're like, Oh, but I'm not a baby anymore. I've grown up. I don't fall over and cry anymore, but we have other, uh, I suppose more complex, you could argue interactions, uh, that can drive that sort of emotional response causing pain and that those can involve like work stress, life stress, relationships, uh, environmental factors, uh, like financial things. There's, there's lots of other things that can drive that, which we might dive into a bit deeper later. Yeah. So before, well, before we move on to those other factors, you gave, you gave that really good, you know, that classic example in research of the spine and how abnormalities don't necessarily describe pain. When we look at tissues that are commonly injured or painful for powerlifters, so things like the hips or the knees or the elbows, does that same thing seem to hold true? Um, is there research directly examining that? Uh, I wouldn't say directly in terms of the population of powerlifters, just because powerlifting is a very uh, unresearched sport, I suppose, compared to other sports where there's a lot more financial incentive to um, figure out why athletes are having pain and these things that are basically negatively affecting their sport performance like soccer or basketball where there's big money in it. But we can take lots of those other studies um, from other sports where there has been shown that, yes, athletes can experience pain, whether there is a underlying sort of structural driver of it or not. 
And this can significantly influence the athlete's experience and consequently their sports performance. So this is something that they're looking into more in terms of ways to modify things to get people feeling better and ultimately performing better at their respective sports or activities for general population as well. Cool. So now that we've kind of highlighted the idea that pain isn't necessarily caused by sort of structural damage or just structure in general, what are some of the other factors that can cause pain? Let's, let's go into that a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good question. And sort of like I touched on before, um, lots of other non-physical factors and there are physical factors as well can influence one's experience of pain. Uh, an example or analogy sort of I like to use for patients that can be quite relatable is, um, for example, have you boys ever stubbed your toe before? Yeah, every day. Yeah. So if we think of sort of two scenarios, all right, one, you're leaving your house and you stub your toe. And in this scenario, so you've just won the lottery, the weather's perfect, you're about to go on a holiday with the boys, um, you've got your dream job or you never have to work in your life, um, you know, everything's coming up millhouse here, so to speak, right? We stub our toe, we walk out, we're not going to care, you know, anything about this stub toe. Like, ah, oh, so what? Like, we've got so many more exciting things to look forward to. Who cares? It's not that bad. The second scenario being, so we're walking out of the house. The reason we're walking out of the house is because we just got evicted. The bank's repossessing it. We've lost our job. You know, friends and family are like sick. If someone's died, let's make it real like dark, you know, other kinds of crazy stuff going on. Your missus has just left you. You stub your toe and it's like, wow, like I've already got all this stuff going on and now I've got this, this stub toe as well. Um, I suppose like what do you think your experience of pain would be in like situation one versus the, the second one? Well, the second one, you would experience more pain, right? And you'd yeah. probably draw more conscious attention towards it and like fixate on it because it's sort of helping you in that spiral towards a bad mood you know whereas the first Absolutely. one is a distraction you'd ignore yeah that's exactly right um so that sort of highlights like the the insult that sort of sparked i suppose this potential to get pain was stubbing the toe and it's exactly the same in both situations but those contextual factors in terms of your like i said your environment meaning like literally it can literally be where you are situated physically um, at the moment or social uh, situations such as you know with a, a group of friends you might want to act a bit tough or something or if you're you know at home by yourself or you know with your loved one or something you might you know play it up a little bit more for example uh, your emotional state if you're happy and on top of the world you're going to care less generally about these relatively insignificant things versus if it feels like the weight of the world's on top of you Anything else is just like, you know, an extra kick in the gut, so to speak. Um, and like I said, that can include financial things as well, your, your work environment. Um, also as well, your previous held thoughts, beliefs and expectations, classic ones in back pain where, um, you know, a lot of people think, well, I've got back pain, I don't want to bend over because that'll probably cause me back pain. Not necessarily. Um, even you can, uh, there's been research to show that things like uh, religious and cultural uh, beliefs and differences as well can influence our our perception and experience of pain. So it's a very fascinating area of research that's certainly we've touched on the tip of the iceberg at the moment. Um, in future, we'll be looking at well, how can we modify these factors as effectively as possible 
to help out people in pain as best we can. So full disclosure, I know almost nothing about pain science. I know just enough to say silly things that Dan will correct me. So, <laughs> well, hopefully. Um, so one thing is that I, I think I've seen research to the effect that depression increases people's sensitivity to back pain stimuli, which would be, that would support the idea that your emotional state or, you know, your neurobiological state can make you more or less susceptible to experiencing back pain. And another one, um, another concept I've seen thrown about, but I haven't, I haven't looked at direct evidence for it, is that the degree of stress you're experiencing can also, can also impact how, um, how much pain you experience, but also how like vigilant you are for pain stimuli, and perhaps like for listeners to relate to this, you know, times when you are highly stressed or anxious about your training direction or things like that, you might be more might be more concerned when you're experiencing very minor niggles. Whereas when you're highly motivated and believing that training's going well, if you have like a knee that clicks in between your set, you might be much less concerned by it. And that's definitely something I've experienced. Dan, do, do either or both of those things sound true to you or are they born out in your practice? No, def definitely they're true. Um, so like we sort of touched on before, those experiences and beliefs, they, they have a high influence on what your experience of pain is um, and maybe just I should just take a step back for a second just try and explain like well what is pain in the first place because um, sort of the old definition involved there being some kind of structural or physical insult that drives pain and this is what was termed uh, uh, correct I might be a little bit incorrect here but um, nociceptive pain uh, nociceptive pain meaning that when you have some kind of structural damage or insult or something that threatens the system, you've got these nerves in your body that activate at a certain threshold. And when this threshold is reached, they send messages up to the spinal cord, from the spinal cord up to the brain, and then it gets processed within the brain. And that sort of pathway there was generally called nociception. Now, what they found was that just because nociceptive fibers or these nerves have been activated, uh, it doesn't mean that you're always going to feel and experience pain. And then you've got these, these modulators of that, uh, that messaging system, like you said, sort of depression and, ex and anxiety, expectations, beliefs, the other things we sort of just touched on. And they can modulate everything sort of at, at the brain level because that's where all of that stuff is, is processed. There's other things as well that can modulate that at the, the local level in terms of where the pain's actually being experienced. So that the local area to the, the tissue can also be uh, modulated at the spinal level when that message ultimately travels from where you're feeling and experiencing pain to the spine before that message gets sent up the spinal cord, it can be modulated there. Then once it's sent up the spinal cord before it enters the, the higher processing centers of the brain, it can be modulated there as it passes its way through the thalamus. And then once it's actually into the brain and moves towards like the, around all the different sections of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, amygdala, and all that sort of emotional processing centers, it's just, you can just imagine it like a tangled ball of wool of crazy inputs that's just going on, you know, pushing, tugging, pulling, modifying this message that's been sent. And ultimately what the brain is trying to figure out is, is this information that I've received a threat to my being and existence. It tries to look back at, say, at least this is the, the theory at the moment, the leading theory, 
It tries to look back at like past history and experience, current contextual factors like your environment and social, financial, other life stresses and stuff like that, what your expectations are going to be. And then when it processes all of this, ultimately it needs to have an output and that output's either going to be, okay, it's not a threat, I don't need to worry about it, let's ignore it and you'll never be conscious of it. And that's when you can have, I suppose, damage or something that can drive pain but not actually cause pain. Or you experience some form of pain. And then the type of pain you experience, that's sort of another, another kettle of fish. But so, to li- oh, you sorry, go, go, go. just to quickly, yeah, just to quickly link back to what you were saying, um, heaps of research has looked at well those contextual factors, like you said, depression, anxiety, um, you know, what is their prognostic value, meaning how likely are people to experience pain or I suppose suffer or have this pain? And they're probably some of the the top picks. The number one pick, which is a powerful question to ask people is, you know, what's your expectation of this pain? Like how long do you expect to have it? When do you expect you're going to get better? And that's actually probably the number one thing. So hopefully that answers it. Yeah. So I think if I were to just summarize what you just said, because for a lot of people, that's going to be, that's going to represent a profound change in how they conceptualize pain. So many people will consider pain as literally just input output, Something happens, nerve sense it, bam, the brain says pain. What you've now told us is that there may still be that signal of an insult, but it's subject to lots and lots of lots and lots of modifying factors and ultimately what we experience in pain is some is goal directed. It's to say we need to draw attention to this tissue or avoid further injury, or we can ignore this because it's not a threat. Is that would that be exactly. fair? Yeah, that's very fair. It's, it's ultimately, like if you think about pain, what's, what's pain useful for? It's a, it's a behavior modifying feeling. If we never experienced pain, our body and brain wouldn't be able to very effectively protect us from certain things. It's, it's almost a learning tool. So for example, um, in psychology, I think they sort of talk about like, as, as a kid, for example, say you touch a hot stove and you burn yourself, you feel and experience pain. And then that changes your behavior in the future because you know, oh, oh, if I touch that, it's going to hurt. Hurting is a bad thing. I won't do that in the future because it can protect myself from certain injury. But sometimes we get those associations, uh, you know, a bit mixed up or a bit confused or wrong. And that avoidance of certain things or that belief and expectation of, oh, this is a painful, this is going to cause pain and this is a bad thing for my existence or health or whatever it might be um, i'm not going to do that and actually be harmful in the future so what implications then does this understanding of pain have for training and when you speak about how important things like beliefs and expectations are as practitioners when is it good or bad advice to say to somebody if it hurts don't do it because it'll hurt yeah great question well i suppose sort of like we link it all back pain being a behavior modifying experience. If we expect to feel pain or do feel pain, that can change our behaviors and our, our movements. So to relate that to sport, say we're getting back pain and we're doing a squat or a deadlift, we might not be as comfortable to try and put the level of effort and intensity that we need for that set to get the strength or training adaptation that we're trying to achieve and because of that we'll pull back we'll underperform won't perform as well 
Um, and that can lead to, say, slower strength gains or improvements in sport over time or decreased performance you know, when it matters so on the platform. Um, sorry, yeah, I thought you were going to go. Yeah, I, um, I was, but I didn't want to interrupt you. I think you just you began to touch on a thread that I'm really curious about, which is that do these beliefs, even where they may not cause us pain, can they still inhibit our performance? So can it be that the expectation that your back might hurt when you deadlift, can that stop you from sort of trying hard enough when you deadlift to deadlift the most that you can? Yeah, exactly. And absolutely it can. Because um, once again, it's, it's that behavior modification that it, that it causes and that ultimately influences our, our performance. Um, because it's, like I said, sort of in that example of that classic nociceptive view of pain where you've got the messages coming from, um, from somewhere in the body, wherever it might be sore, or potentially, you know, has potential to be sore, that goes all the way up the spine according to the brain to be processed. Our brain's always just processing things in the background in general. It doesn't even have to have that initial trigger um, from the periphery, meaning outside to the, the brain and the spinal cord, um, to even generate pain in the first place. And that's where you can get that, that pain without any structural damage or uh, issue in the first place is because ultimately your decision, or not decision, your, your subconscious decision or your feeling and experience of pain is an output of the brain just processing the information that it has present at that point in time. Yeah, so I think that, that again is something that maybe people could relate to on an anecdotal level, um, either in their own experience at powerlifting competitions or perhaps watching other people in athletic endeavours where you see you sometimes might see athletes who ignore pain um, because there's some higher purpose in their performance. So rugby league fans might think of like Sam Burgess playing with a broken cheekbone. Alex is a big Rabbitohs fan, so he's, he's stoked that I brought that up. What a hero. What a hero. But, you know, like <laughs> in my last powerlifting comp, for instance, I, I was experiencing some back pain um, early in the comp. Dan actually gave me some treatment and some kind words, and I was able to deadlift what felt like pain-free at the time. And then afterwards, obviously, my back hurt then. Um, but in my training, my performance when I was experiencing back pain was pretty suppressed. Um, you know, my rate of perceived effort was much higher because I, partly because I had the expectation of pain, so there was some inhibition in how I've approached the bar. And definitely, I've seen the same thing of clients where their expectations of themselves or what might hurt in training have slowed them, slowed them down. Then you put them in a different environment where for some reason performance is more important and pain is less and the inhibition goes and they show potential that they didn't have. Alex, is that something you've seen for yourself or your clients? Well, I was going to ask you that is, do you think that the only reason why you didn't experience pain was because the competition mattered to you and it was out of your mind? Well, I'd actually like Dan's input on this, but I think that was a large part of why. I think I was so distracted by the importance of the occasion um, that there, there was no introspection going on. You know, there was no attention for me drawn towards my back. It was like, there's a bar on the floor. I must pick this mm. up. And like, I might experience pain later, but for now that's not important. That's how I experienced it consciously. Dan, is that something that, that you might see in practice or sounds normal? Yeah, definitely. Um, particularly in my anecdotal experience in more elite level athletes, they seem to have this ability that when it's game time, 
they just switch on and nothing else matters apart from that objective of performance. And I think this is a pretty common trend amongst most top athletes in the world is they know or they, not necessarily they know, but they have that ability to switch it on, so to speak, when they need to. And that switching it on means uh, getting that right arousal level, um, blocking out things that, you know, shouldn't matter as much compared to the objective of I need to perform at this moment in time. Um, and that's seen in elite athletes, but also like you touched on at the start of this, um, like someone crawling out of a car accident or something like that. The brain's in that sort of, you know, the body's in that whole sort of fight or flight type mode. You've got that real clear objective of, I need to get out of this car or else I might die. Pretty good reason to ignore a broken ankle or whatever it might be. And you just get on and do things. I mean, you can sort of trace that all the way back to the survival instinct of, of cavemen or something, running away from a predator or something back in the day. Um, you know, if you've got some injury or something, you're going to stop and tend to that because what's more important is your existence and that threat to your existence um, or other intrinsic threats to, I suppose, your performance. You're going to just focus on what's most important and get the job done. So then um, I guess people who, people who still hold or who hold an opinion that pain is still possibly rooted in structural damage, their counter argument or what they might say in response to this though, is that ignoring pain might lead you to incur further injury. So, you know, while what I just said might be, might be practically useful in a competition context or for an elite athlete who's being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to play a sport, when we're experiencing routine pain in training and pain that is persistent, should we be, should we be aiming to ignore it and train through the pain? Should we be aiming should we correlate reductions in pain with healing of tissue or, or the absence of structural damage or should our whole paradigm be different? What should we really be looking for? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a, a difficult one to answer, but in uh, Stuart McGill's words, it depends. That's the um, spin bowler. Not quite. We uh, make Canadian that joke every researcher. time. Yeah, we make <laughs> that joke every time he's mentioned. Go on, back yeah, pain yeah. researcher. That's, that's good. Yeah, so... Um, Ignore, ignoring him though, because the, the, the context of him doesn't matter in terms of my response, but there's definitely a time and place when it's okay to push through and ignore pain. And there's a time and place when it definitely needs to be addressed and looked at further. And I suppose that's where the skill of a good clinician comes in invaluable because their role, at least in my eyes, um, should be to try and determine, well, if we, if we drew like a scale between like your pain being a serious actual threat that can cause into or turn into like structural damage or something that's going to negatively affect your performance and health in the future versus, yep, this is just an arbitrary pain experience that you're getting. It's not something that we need to pay you any weight to. Go balls to the wall and just push it. We had to figure out well, where on that spectrum does an individual lie. So what I sort of, uh, I suppose some little take-home things for the listeners would be, Generally speaking, like if you've done something, so there's been a moment in time where you've potentially experienced some kind of trauma, classic example of like doing a squat or a deadlift, like, oh, I felt my back go, is something that I would typically hear. Yeah, you probably want to get that checked out just to make sure that that's okay. Whereas if there's been no obvious moment in time and you've just either developed this sort of pain sort of gradually um, 
and it's just a little bit of a niggle, it's a little bit of a nuisance and you're unsure, should I be concerned, should I not? Um, you can implement a bit of a, a sort of watch and wait strategy. And well, then I suppose the next question is, well, how long can I just observe this pain and keep training until I need to get it checked out? Because um, some people just have these niggles and things and there can be actually pathologies and, and actual injuries that can last for months and months but doesn't actually stop you from training. Um, <clears throat> a general rule I would say is probably if you have something for more than <clears throat> two weeks and it doesn't seem to be <clears throat> excuse me, going away, you probably want to get that just, just checked out to make sure that things are okay. Um, or if you've, you've got this pain and it's starting to negatively affect your technique, your performance or other meaningful activities in life, such as your work, which can mean your financial security, your ability to engage in social situations or you know, hanging out with mates. For example, if you've got this back pain and it's really quite debilitating for sitting long periods and you want to go and hang out with your, your mates at a pub or something like that, but you know, well, we'll probably be there for a couple of hours. My back's going to be horrendous. I'm not going to enjoy myself as much as I should. That's certainly another indicator for let's go and get this checked out. Or if it affects just your own time and your own like playing and enjoyment so, or, or sleep even. So if it has a meaningful impact or something that's bothering you in life, definitely I recommend getting it checked out sooner rather than later because then at least you can get that advice saying, hey, this pain's nothing. It's all cool. Just let's just see how it goes. Carry on with things or... No, there's some things we can do that can help you out. Let's let's implement those strategies and, and get on top of it as quickly as possible. You mentioned something that I think the word, the word you mentioned, niggle, I think something that yeah. is thrown around in powerlifting a lot. And I think to people who are newer to it, they consider any niggle to be an injury. And as you get sort of more advanced with powerlifting, you know, you're going to have niggles pop up and the more advanced you get, the more you can often realize that a niggle is just a niggle and it's not actually an injury. How can you determine what is an injury and what is a niggle? Yeah, that's a, once again, that's a really difficult question to answer and it, it does depend on the, the individual. Um, so I would, I suppose, if you're an athlete um, who's you know, quite novice, uh, meaning you don't have years and years of experience or you have a history of say a more advanced athlete because you get this as well you get people who like more advanced athletes who just don't quite understand when they need to get things checked out a bit sooner which would be beneficial in the long run um, and you get uh, novice athletes the complete opposite who will go and get absolutely everything checked out um, it sort of falls roughly back to that sort of algorithm um, that I just touched on in the sense that if there hasn't been any obvious trauma or moment in time where you feel like you've done something and then your pain immediately started as a direct result of that, then that's already one big tick and green light in your favor. Two, if it's not negatively affecting your performance in your sport or your training or other meaningful activities in your life, like I said, like social events, uh, work, play, sleep, uh, anything like that, then that's another big tick and green light in your favour. And if it's not, 
I suppose, a horrendous pain that just, just feels very disabling but isn't actually physically affecting you, but more so at, say, emotionally or mentally affecting you, if it's not doing that, then that's sort of three big ticks and green lights in my eyes that says, all right, we can at least watch and wait and see how this goes from when it sort of first arises. If that then continues over, say, two weeks or more, um, just because I generally like to be a little bit more proactive than, say, leaving it a whole month, um, if that's trending towards it's getting better or it's improving, uh, then just watch and wait. If it's continuing after two weeks and it's not getting any, any better or any worse, definitely go and check, get it checked out. If it's progressively worsening, um, I'll definitely get it checked out. Now, that's just in terms of your pain experience, but there's some other little criteria that I'd like to just touch on, and that would be if, you, if it's like affecting your mental state, so how you start to approach training, how you start to sort of think and feel about uh, this pain and it sort of bothering and annoying you and sort of weighing on your mind a little bit. So it's always like this worrying voice in the back of your head. If that's starting to creep into your training or other daily activities, I definitely recommend getting that checked out as well because it can be surprising how relieving it can be just having someone, um, you know, who you see has a, like a, a position of authority like a, a healthcare provider and has more knowledge about it than what, what you would as an individual. If they sort of say to you, look, we've, we've gone through your history, we've tested it out, we've had a look at it, There's, it doesn't appear to be you know, anything major that we need to stress and worry about. We're okay to continue pushing through things. You can be a bit more aggressive if you want to. Um, just getting that reassurance and confidence that, yeah, my body's okay. Um, they've said it's okay. I can continue working through things. That can actually decrease your pain almost on the spot. Whereas if you see someone and they assess it and they find something, then you've got that added reassurance of, oh, I'm not just making things up. It is, I'm glad I came in here and got this tested out because now I've got some strategies and things I can work on and that's going to help me in the long run. That's generally speaking how things go. So when, like, when people have common overuse injuries, so an example might be like patella tendinopathy or you know, quad tendinopathy, um, common overuse injuries, there's often certain modes of exercise that are prescribed to help with rehab. So I, again, a classic for those knee tendon issues might be like leg extension, isometric holds or eccentrics. Um, or it might involve squatting to a high box instead of to full depth. When we're doing things like that, how much of the benefit of, of what we're doing is actually because they aid like tissue regeneration or tissue remodeling, as opposed to exposing you to a movement that was previously causing pain, but not causing pain anymore. So you're sort of, you're defying that expectation and building belief in the athlete that they can lift again. Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant question. Um, the short answer being with the current state of research at the moment, that benefit that you get to pain, none of that is due to any structural change whatsoever. Um, there's been lots of studies to sort of show, particularly in the example of a, a tendon-based pain um, or tendinopathy, that uh, to have changes in pain, you don't have to have any changes in the actual tissue structure. And quite commonly what they see as well in those type of conditions is that the tissue actually doesn't change at all, even after a sort of 12 to 14 week time frame 
of working diligently on rehab, um, yet the pain can change very drastically and that ultimately influences one's performance. Um, so that's quite a, a fascinating thing. And then to touch on in terms of the mode of exercise like isometrics or eccentrics or, or something, um, some sort of exercise or thing to do to in theory help modify pain. There's a few theories around that. Um, just to touch on where the isometrics came from, that was first really heavily popular, uh, popularized by uh, Ebony Rio, who is now researching at La Trobe University. She published a paper back in 2015 that looked at elite level Australian netballers with patellotendinopathy or like kneecap uh, tendon pain and exposed them to these isometric holds, uh, five sets of 45 seconds with 45 seconds rest between, and found that the group that did that compared to doing an isotonic movement, um, if I remember the study correctly, isotonic meaning controlled speed through a range of motion, so it might be like a tempo squat, for example. Um, I think they used in their study a uh, like a, a tempo leg extension was like, four seconds uh, down and three seconds back up or something like that so that the time under tension between the, the two groups, the one doing the isometric, so the static not moving uh, effort and the group that was doing the moving effort was the same. And they found that the group that did isometrics had a profound reduction in pain by about 80%, um, which is massive. Now, research has tried to reproduce this um, and what they, the, the limitations of that study was the, there was only about six people per group. So not diving into statistics too much, but that's not nearly high enough of a number to give us confidence in, in the results. Sometimes that can just purely be chance. Um, so when they tried to replicate this, they didn't find as prolific results as what they did back in 2015. But what they've started to realise um, with more modern research that's come out even just last year, 2019, is the biggest influencer of whether or not those exercises have an impact on their pain seems to be the instructions that the, say, the, the healthcare professional or the, the coach gives the athlete before doing the exercises. So if I say, um, here, try these exercises, let's see what happens versus... The research has shown that these exercises can significantly reduce your pain. I think you'll do really well with them. Let's see how much pain we can potentially reduce. The person who is told that or set up to sort of expect and believe that, yeah, my pain's going to reduce, that's what these exercises are for, they seem to have a much, much greater and bigger effect. And that's where the research is sort of going at the moment is, well, can we leverage that almost, you could say, placebo effect of setting people up to sort of believe and expect that, well, yeah, this, this can reduce my pain. It's going to be a good thing for me and leverage that for performance um, and rehab benefits. That may be the best sort of way in the future, but I'm sure there's ways we can do that without, uh, I suppose, like just blatantly misleading and lying to individuals. Um, I've got a bit more to say, but it looks no, like please, you had a, I'm, I'm all right. My mouth being open is not because I'm bored. I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> it's fine. Go on. All right. So then I suppose the third part of all of this is um, 
irrespective of whether or not it's an isometric, eccentric, you patting your cat or whatever it might be, um, exposing people to a movement or an activity that they expect to be painful, like you alluded to before, Will, um, that has a really powerful effect on people's pain. Um, they seem to think this through, that is mediated through uh, an effect that they sort of, um, they've termed as uh, expectation violation. And basically what that means in a nutshell is, is what, it's, what it sounds like, is that if your expectation is that this movement or exercise, whatever it might be, is going to cause me pain, but then I try it and I can do it and it's not so bad, maybe it's a little bit of pain, but it's not as much as I expect, that's sort of a positive loop in your brain that will then facilitate the further reduction of pain and your ability to do more of that movement um, and exercise. Um, and we can leverage this through, I suppose, what you could call uh, exposure therapy, which is something that Greg Lehman, a Canadian uh, chiropractor, physiotherapist and researcher, talks about a lot. I think he's got some really good educational blog material out there that people can go and read. It's quite easy to digest or relatively compared to some other more technical things. But the idea of not avoiding things, so not being fear avoidant and trying to sort of just gently ease back into things and uh, as, as Greg Lehman likes to say, sort of poking the bear but not humping the shit out of it is probably a good approach to take <laughs> when it comes to addressing our pains. Poke the bear, um, violate it, but not too much. Exactly. Violate the um, bear. Choke what... the bear, but don't <laughs> break the bear. Choke yeah, the don't... bear. Good, correct. <laughs> yeah. um, now, one last really fascinating thing about all of this as well is we were initially looking back in 2015 when all the hype and rage was on isometrics, which is if we break it down into simple components, it's exposing the painful area to some kind of load stimulus and observing what the uh, change or response is in terms of their pain when we try and provoke it again. So it's where, I'll touch on that again, it's where you're exposing the area that is sore and painful to a stimulus, some kind of load or whatever it might be, and seeing how that changes your, your, your pain output with a, like a retest afterwards. Now what they found is, for example, if we use like a, a knee pain patient, instead of doing like a, you know, a wall sit or a squat or a lunge or whatever it might be, something that directly affects the knee, you can do bicep curls and that can reduce your, your pain that you feel in your knee. You can do stuff that's not even linked to the area um, and that can actually reduce your experience of pain. Uh, secondary to that as well, you can do something that's systemic like cardiovascular exercise, like go for a swim. Um, so using, say, arguably more of the whole body, and that can also reduce your experience of pain. Now, the, the term that they use in research um, that basically uh, is used to describe that phenomena eludes me at the moment. Um, it's just slipped the top of my mind. But that's something that they're looking into at the moment is we don't have to do things that are local to the area. We can do things that are away from the area on the body or do things that affect the whole body as a system um, in an exercise capacity, and that can have a, a whole body pain reducing effect, which is, I think is absolutely fascinating. So we're going to take a break, but before we do, could you try and, this is going to be hard. Can you give us yes. the 
30-second summary on the pain experience and what we can do when we experience it. Done. So pain is a complex phenomena that is ultimately an output of the brain. And that output is affected by numerous different inputs, both from within the body, within the brain and our expectations and the environment that we live in and expose ourselves to daily. What we can do with this knowledge is we can start to identify a little bit better that other factors and strategies can influence our pain. And it's not always a structural damage and issue. This can empower us because it means that if there isn't a structural damage or issue going on, we're not at risk of causing further damage to ourselves or harming ourselves. And we can, in uh, surprisingly, a lot of situations, push through and continue to hunt those sort of training adaptations and stimulus that we're they're chasing for our long-term both health and physical performance benefits. That was awesome. Um, thank thank you. you so much. We're going to take a very quick break, guys. We'll be right back to talk about tightness and activation. So I just remember that the um, that phenomena about doing exercise at any part of the body, whether it's local to the bit of pain, away from it, or the whole body, so systemically, um, that can reduce all pain. Um, uh, that's called exercise-induced hypoalgesia. Um, what that means, the hypoalgesia, hypo meaning low, and algesia refers to pain. So that's sort of where that's come from. So if you give that a bit of a Google, you'll go down an absolute rabbit hole and a half. Wonderful. So, so to those of you who need some orientation. Yeah, well, this is Weekly Weights. This is episode 87. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, we're here with Dan Gadesi. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I think I, excuse my French, fucked your name hard at the start of this episode. Is it Dan Gadesi or Dan Gadesi or what? I think the Aussie pronunciation for it is Gadesi. Mm-hmm. But... If you put an Italian accent on it, because that's where it comes from, from my dad's side of the family, it's it's probably like uh, Godiasi. Godiasi. Okay, the so second, here, we're here with Dan Godiasi. I'm going to rag on him for a bit. I'm sorry. The second that yeah. somebody says, how do you say your name? And you have to start your response with, I think. Like, sorry, <laughs> mate, but you forfeited the right for me to say <laughs> your name correctly. I'm going to do the best I can. Dan Godiasi. That that's good enough. Thank I've, you. I've heard it all, so just lay it on me. you know the best so you know our friend Jules Nanetti Um, she trains at the Strength Fortress now she used to work with Alex and I we went to Uzbekistan for a powerlifting competition together and her actual name is Juliana Nanetti Um, and Juliana is spelled with a G so it's G-I-U and the, the commentator in Uzbekistan who was soldiering on in their second language announcing things called her Nanetti Guiliana for the entire... <laughs> <laughs> That's so pretty great. It was phenomenal. So I still call her Guiliana all the time. But Nanetti Guiliana. All right. Well, uh... <laughs> this podcast has got a point. Um, and the topic of discussion now is that of tightness and muscle activation. So when we were emailing, talking about getting you on the podcast, you mentioned that there's a lot of misconceptions about what tightness is. And so when we when we experience a muscle being tight, say our adductors, which would be a common one, or a hip flexor, it doesn't necessarily mean that the muscle is like actually structurally shorter or it might not even lack extensibility as compared to the other ones. So can you again just give us like, give us some background information, lay the foundations. 
what it, what does it mean for us to experience tightness and what are some of the actual plausible causes for why we do? Yeah, exactly. Um, I suppose like most people felt and experienced tightness at some time, but if you want to talk about tightness in terms of the more strict definition of the word, um, tightness should mean that there is also some kind of restriction, whether that restriction means that the tightness that you feel is reducing your available range of motion, whether that be passive or active, or that tightness causes, I suppose, stiffer movement through that, that range of motion that you have. So we can test this quite easily clinically um, through putting people through simple sort of passive motion and active range of motion tests. And if we find that there's, there's no obvious deficits with those, then, and this is, seems to anecdotally be, um, at least in my professional experience, most of the times, tightness that people come in with an experience is just that, it's an experience. It's not an actual physical phenomenon that's, that's going on. Um, I'm pretty happy that actually just recently, it was probably like a few weeks ago, a paper was published um, on neck pain and looking into does neck uh, pain or, or like neck tightness or stiffness cause physical deficits compared to uh, matched controls or another group um, that doesn't have any neck like tightness or stiffness going on. And they found that there was no difference between the two groups apart from the group's subjective experience of that tightness. Um, so what, what can cause tightness then I suppose is what that sort of leads us into now that we can start to appreciate that it doesn't always have to be a physical restriction or issue. Um, and it sort of links back into with our discussions previously on, on pain also being a complex uh, experience that we, we feel. And I don't exactly have the, the best answer, I suppose. I haven't looked into it a huge amount of the research, but pain, once again, it, it can be ex an experience that is an output of the brain based on a whole bunch of sort of inputs and processing that's involved up there. So maybe there is an underlying uh, driver, whether it is something structural or a niggle or just pain or irritation, or something like that. And because of that, we have this perception of tightness around that. Um, or maybe it is literally just an output of our brain for some reason um, and not a true... Then the flip side of that, apart from it just being a, I suppose, cognitive or mental sort of experience that we, we feel, sort of like feeling like happy or sad, um, there can absolutely be some uh, more traditional structural or physical drivers of this sort of tightness that we tend to feel. Um, commonly, uh, there tends to be some kind of joint irritation. So if we have a joint that is, and I, I like using the word irritated because that doesn't necessarily imply that there is structural damage or inflammation or that it's just more sensitive or whatever it might be. But if a joint is irritated, so not feeling as it was previously and feeling normal, so to speak, that can cause uh, actual muscular tightness or a perception of muscular tightness around that joint. 
Um, when you test for that clinically to say, well, what is the meaning of this structural or this perception of tightness? Still, interestingly, quite commonly, I don't see many big restrictions, but often you can. You can see restrictions in the mobility of a joint if it is uh, irritated due to the muscular control around that um, and actually being tight, which means it's restricting movement in some way. Um, so, sorry, you carry yeah. on again. No, I was, was going to say that. I'll probably just pause myself there for a moment and let you guys get a word in and then I'll touch on another cool example. So you, you spoke then about how irritation in a joint can cause some like protective tightness. Would that be a fair way of summarizing it? Like your muscles restrict you because the joint's not necessarily stable. I've also yeah. had it put to me that, um, that muscles don't like to sort of extend past a point where obviously I'm phrasing this poorly, but muscles don't like to extend past a point where they have like the strength or control to get themselves out of that range of motion. And so, so oftentimes when a muscle is really tight, it can also be weak or in need of training because it hasn't learned that it can control itself or bring it out of lengthened positions and produce high forces when it needs to. And again, that's a protective mechanism to stop you accessing those ranges. And so what you might observe in a joint as well is that a restriction in, um, what's a good example? Say hip flexion and inability to get into hip flexion might be because you also lack some hip extension strength and so those muscles don't want to get very lengthened as well. Um, is what I just said true at all? Yeah, it, it is, um, I suppose, to a point. Um, where that initial concept, uh, I think, came from was some really uh, old research where basically they know muscles have that protective response, whereas where if you are going to, say, stretch your hamstring like as far as you possibly can, eventually it's going to become painful and the muscle will have that natural sort of reflex effect to contract, to protect it from potential damage. Um, when we put that then in, so that's in like a, a non-injured healthy example. So if I stretch my hamstring as far as I can, it's eventually going to stretch to the point where it starts to feel painful and my hamstring will contract to prevent it from being overstretched and potentially damaging the tissue. Um, now, if you were an injured individual um, and you had something going on at the, the joint sort of level or at the muscle level, then that reflex can be brought forward so that it uh, tries that to protect things at a even earlier point in your mobility um, to reduce the risk of injury. Um, then I suppose as well, uh, if or more so like if you're injured just because a joint or muscles or whatnot feel tight, the hypothesis is that it's to stabilize the joint or to protect the joint. But we have to keep in mind that these are just hypotheses. They're not like they're not, it's, it's really hard to sort of prove that as a theory. Certainly we know that if we do have back pain, it's probably the most common relatable one because I think about, 90 something percent of the population is going to experience back pain at some point in their life. Um, if you have back pain, quite commonly your back feels like it stiffens up and it's hard to move. So we could make the argument that, well, the muscles are either restricting our movement because of A, it's holding the joints in a more fixed position, which may give it some sort of uh, safety or comfort, 
or B, it's just literally just trying to limit movement uh, overall. We don't really know what the answer is, but what we do know is that phenomena of that tightness and restriction in movement is a very fluid and dynamic thing. And it's ultimately something that once again is processed up in the brain. So if you find you've got some back pain or something like that, and you go and see your physio or something like that, or even just, for example, say you've got that sort of tight back pain, but then you find, oh, if I do these certain exercises or something, it feels better and then I can move again. Then you've made this change in your, I suppose, your processing and what is ultimately your brain's control over your muscles, which has allowed you to access more movement. Um, and the tightness isn't stemming from the actual muscular tissue being tight and like less elastic, so to speak. It's more due to your nerve control over that muscle saying, hey, we don't need to stop you as early in your movement anymore. We're feeling a bit safer about this or more comfortable and better about this. Let's let you stretch a little bit further rather than the muscle actually just being bound up tight, knotted, so to speak. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up this idea of like doing exercises and that can modify your experience of tightness because if we follow the idea that tightness might be to aid stability, one thing you, one thing you often see, and this is something that actually like Jamie at strength culture, who you work with, his drills really highlight to me is if you change the postural demands on somebody, you can often change the range of motion that, that, that they'll express. And so, you know, sometimes when you get people, instead of standing up and trying to display a squat, obviously they're limited by multiple joints in that motion, but say they say their hips feel tight when they go to squat standing up. If you get them on all fours or even lying supine, they can sometimes express more hip flexion comfortably there because the postural demands have changed, right? And so there might be less of a stability demand there. They're able to access more range of motion. Um, that was the first thing that came to mind then. And then the second thing that ties into that is that when we're when we're doing movements, muscles that muscles that that attach to the same bones or you know the same joint complexes can work together to create stability or force. So again, if we think of the pelvis, there's muscles sitting above it and below it that can both pull to create tightness. And again, this is something I've been told. I'd love to get your two cents on it. Is that if you've got a, if you've got two muscles that can work together to create stability, so say your adductors and your obliques both attached to the pelvis, both can pull it side to side. If one of them doesn't have sufficient tone or it doesn't seem to be doing its job very well, the other might need to, to grab on extra hard to do its job for it. Is um, firstly, could you express that better? And secondly, is that actually the case? And is that something that we can do something about? Yeah, it's a. A, a good um, point of discussion you brought up. Um, it's once again, uh, my answer is probably going to try and keep it a little bit nuanced and sort of say once again, it, it does depend. Um, I think that sort of that idea uh, of opposing muscles or different muscles around a joint sort of working synergistically together and whatnot to create stability, uh, it definitely has a lot of merit and is certainly applicable in real life. Um, but I do think sometimes we do take it a little bit too far. So it's, I suppose we've got to figure out, well, where on this sort of scale do we, do we sit with, do we need to try and drive this co-activation or 
synergistic work of all these different muscles to hold in certain positions uh, versus just trying to do the movement and think about it a bit more globally. Um, now, uh, actual research sort of thing that has, has been shown in terms of how important this muscular coactivation or around a joint or just tightness or tone or whatever you might want to call it is, is in the case of uh, the shoulder joint in someone who's had, say, a stroke where they've had a, a stroke being a, a brain injury and that brain injury has basically destroyed the nerves that are responsible for controlling the musculature around the shoulder. Now, the shoulder joint, for those who aren't super familiar with anatomy, if we stripped it back and just looked at what the bones look like, it's, it's more or less akin to a golf ball resting on a golf tee. So our arm is the golf ball and the golf tee is our shoulder blade. Now, our muscles surround all of that and that's what keeps it sort of in place and stable. And then if we go back to our example of someone who's had a stroke and lost control over these muscles that keep that shoulder stable and in place, if you go to help them up from a chair just by assisting them gently from the arm and sort of lift them up, if you did that in most people, they'll be absolutely fine about it. You know, you can put a fair bit of force and pull someone up by their arm. There's someone who's had a stroke and they've lost that control around that shoulder joint because it's severed the nerve connection to the muscles um, or just destroyed that connection, you will dislocate their arm. Um, and that's due to that overall sort of contraction of the muscles around the joint. So we can apply that to other areas of the body. Um, and like Jamie says, if we get our bones aligned in the best sort of possible positions, then that certainly can give the muscles and the brain the best sort of chance to control things and have that desired sort of movement output and performance that we want. But I suppose my little reservation about all of that is when it gets overdone to the point where the focus is on purely just driving all of this co-activation and stuff where they might say, oh, try and suck the, the hip joint into the socket or uh, other various different cues and stuff where the focus more becomes around this arbitrary ability to co-activate all those muscles, which realistically is a skill that happens subconsciously. Um, and that can actually disempower people in the sense that then they can get frustrated that they're just not getting it or they can't feel this activation or stuff going on versus just trying to build confidence in the actual global movement skill. So to me, it's, it's a sliding scale. Okay. I think, um, I think what you just said then is really valuable because we can then take it into the next part of the discussion, which is this idea of doing activation exercises. So for muscles that, either appear not to be contributing as much as they ought in a big movement or muscles that you just don't feel you have much conscious control over. What are we actually doing when we're doing activation exercises? So if we're doing some clamshells and stuff for our glutes and how helpful are they when they're done in that just purely isolated context, as opposed to integrating them into a greater movement? How, what should we be thinking when we're doing stuff like that? That's a good question. I think the crux of it is like from a practical sense is um, when people come in and say, oh, oh, oh we're, we're doing these activation drills, we're going to think of our purpose of well, why are we doing them? Um, 
in terms of uh, my bias, in terms of the population that I tend to see, most people will uh, have the complaint or problem that, oh, I'm, I think I need to do this activation or that activation because I either I can't feel something. So like classic ones like the glutes, I think I need to do more glute activation. I can't feel the glutes working at all. Um, or it's for a, another goal, but they think that the activation is the step to get there. The other goal might be I get back pain when I squat. I probably need to do more glute activation or activate my glutes better so they work better and my back doesn't feel as painful, whatever it might be. Or whether it's a... I can't get into this movement because I need to activate my core and keep it stable or I can't uh, activate whatever it might be on my glutes enough and that's decreasing my deadlift performance or whatever it might be. So it's, so if we strip it back, it's sort of like, to me, it's, a, it's either a proprioceptive or feeling issue where they can't get that, uh, to put it simply like mind-muscle connection or B, it's, it's for a desired outcome that desired outcome being like performance, pain, um, or some other sort of belief and whatnot. So then with that in mind, uh, with, I suppose we go back and we want to look at the research in terms of well, where did this sort of activation stuff come from? Now, I'm not as familiar with it as, uh, say, some top sort of like strength conditioning researchers would be because it's more their sort of field of expertise, but I just keep my finger in that pie because I need it for my practice. Um, but what they sort of looked at with these things is it's all based on sort of EMG studies, generally speaking, where EMG just basically meaning they put little sensors over the, the muscle that they want to look at. And those sensors detect the muscular activity that goes on within that muscle. And that sort of uh, electrical activity that it picks up going on in the muscle is roughly correlated to the nerve activity that's going on in the muscle. So how much nerve impulse and stuff is going on at that muscular level. What they've sort of shown is that when you do these activation exercises, it can increase that electrical activity that's detected through those sensors. So arbitrarily say you're doing some squats or something like that and your glutes, are, it detects 60% electrical activity just for arbitrary numbers sake and you do some glute activations and then you go and retest the squat and you find that, oh, it's gone up to, you know, 70% or something like that. Um, that's sort of where the activations things come from. And then from a performance, well, what does that mean? What does that mean if we increase that electrical sort of activity that's detected? Um, it can, I think, uh, in some circumstances, potentially you know, slightly statistically increased performance, but probably not enough or reliably enough that it's actually meaningful in a practical sense. So it might be the difference between squatting 100 kilos or 100.1 kilos, for example. Um, but it's not significant enough that we need to get hung up on this, this idea. Um, but I don't think that's due, and I don't think there's research on this just yet, but just on other fields that I've looked into, I don't think that's so due to that increased electrical activity. It's probably more likely that that's due to, once again, the sort of contextual factors that you feel like, yeah, my glutes are more on, I'm more in this sort of mental ready state that I can perform better for whatever these reasons might be, and then that's why your output 
is better than it was previously. Now, just to, to sort of strengthen that argument or that contention a little bit is that, like I said, these measures are measures of electrical activity within the muscle. Electrical activities can't tell you what the length tension relationship is in the muscle. It can't tell you what the force of output is of the muscle, which motor units, meaning which parts of the muscle is being uh, recruited how, uh, and, and how quickly. It's more a proxy. Um, so it doesn't directly measure um, meaningful performance measures. It more measures uh, this, this proxy, which is muscle, uh, like muscle, muscle electrical activity. Um, so with that in mind, activation exercises, yes, they can increase uh, electrical activity, which is probably more due to contextual factors in terms of like that sort of mind-muscle connection, I suppose, because that's ultimately what it is. Your brain is more aware or more focused on basically putting more nerve impulses down to the muscle that you're trying to target. And because you're more aware of it or whatnot, um, or because you feel like, yep, yeah, I'm more prepped, or whether it is truly due to that one muscle, when you're looking, generally speaking, in a compound exercise, um, that can potentially lead to very minor performance gains, but not, in my eyes, it is significant enough to be uh, truly like performance enhancing to the point that we need to get hung up on these activation exercises. So if we wanted to have like a very simple decision tree or just a couple of simple decision criteria yep. for people, how do we determine when uh, like some form of activation exercise or prehab is worth doing and when can we likely discard it? Good question. I think um, might be a few little scenarios. Um, to me, like if you can use the activation exercise to get that, like I said, there's sort of two situations. There's one where the ultimate goal of the activation exercise is either to increase that sort of proprioceptive awareness or that mind-muscle connection so you can feel the muscle more. Or two, it's because you're looking for that performance outcome, whatever it might be, whether it's increased strength, mobility, reduced pain, or some other favourable outcome that's not the activation itself. So if you can use it in either of those situations and say you're going through a hypertrophy block and you're needing to bring up your glutes for whatever reason and you find that doing some glute activations prior to the exercise helps you get that better sort of mind-muscle connection, you can feel that engagement, then we can sort of take a, a leap and say, well, then if you can do that and then the actual exercise is designed to load it up to get that hypertrophy stimulus, we can get a, a better activation and, and feeling through the glute, then we're probably targeting it a bit better uh, in terms of getting our outcome of hypertrophy. Secondary, uh, in the other situation for performance outcomes, if we find that it makes us feel stronger or have less pain or be less... Um, fear avoidant with our movements and it allows us just to move technically better or feel better or even just mentally gives us that edge. I say bloody oath, like get, get them done, but you shouldn't design your whole session around spending hours of time doing these activations um, just to get yourself ready to do what ultimately matters. So with, so with the second one, you can almost do a test retest. You say like, I'm going to do this drill before I squat. You do a squat, do that drill, do a squat again. And if the second one feels 
like significantly better or you've gotten the desired effect from it, it's worthwhile. And if it hasn't, then it might not be. Would that be fair? Yeah, Brim, that's spot on. Okay, bang on. Sweet. Let's take another quick break and then we're going to come back and we'll hit down with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about the person. Weekly Weights. Welcome back. Episode 87, Dan Godiasi. Nice. Can I get it? Is that it? That's good. Solid. So uh, we're going to hit Dan with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Are you ready, man? I've I've been contemplating this. I I don't know if you ever can be ready for these questions. So so Dan's obviously (laughs) an avid listener of the show. So he's he's prepared. In fact, I think he's our first guest. Tell me if I'm correct, Alex. Our first guest has like literally demanded to come on. You think so? Actually, yeah, no, Liz Craven. Didn't she demand to come on? Well, Robert Wilkes is still demanding to come on for the second time. Is he? Yeah. yeah. He asks me every time I see him. Um, anyway. Yeah. Whatever. I'm, I'm hungry. One. You ready? Question one. I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. All right. So you've got to take someone out to dinner, dead or alive. Who would it be? I thought about this. Don't say your missus. No, 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 no. It's, it's all right. But she, she can be reserved for other dinners. Um, but I reckon you've got to take someone who's dead because... Because they don't eat. Because there's always, yeah, there's always yeah. a chance that you'll get to take, get yeah, to take someone get, alive. Yeah. No, no, no. It's got to be someone who's dead because then you get two dinners. Um, but also because there's, there's just some fascinating people throughout history who I think would be interesting to sort of pick their brains and... For me, being such a nerd, I reckon Isaac Newton is probably the sick nerd baller who you should take out and pick his brain because he was just like centuries ahead of his time. You reckon you'd tell him that like we now know Newtonian physics is incorrect or do you reckon that would upset him? Nah, I reckon, I reckon, I reckon you'd tell him. <laughs> see, see, see what he says. Like, no, but you're wrong on this. Um, but... I don't know. I just think he's absolutely fascinating because he was, he existed back in the 1600s and people were still frolicking around in their, their horses and castles and shit. Um, and just his, <laughs> and his, his ideas were just so far ahead of the time. Um, and to be able to do that in the time period that he was living in, in terms of uh, academics back then would, would be, you know, hung, drawn and quartered for, questioning anything that went against like religion and stuff at the time. Um, I, I just think he's, it'd just be a fascinating person to sort of pick his brain and how Sick he came answer. up with all it's that. Stuff we, we haven't had, uh, we haven't had that answer before. Yeah, no, I backed that. That was cool. All right. Question two. I'm actually excited to hear your answer for this one because I have no idea what sports you like. So this Ooh. will give me an insight. Who's your favorite athlete of all time? My favorite athlete of all time. i I'm going to sort of give this a two-part. I know that's kind of cheating because it's picking more than one, but my, my favourite is Usain Bolt just because of what he's been able to do in the sport and his personality and flair with the stuff he does, I suppose, both on the track and off the track. Um, so I quite enjoyed watching his era of racing. Surprisingly, we, we haven't actually had that answer before. Not true. Wilkes said Usain Bolt. Did he? Yeah, he did. And there he was, go. oh, that's right. And he was like, yeah, he's definitely natty. Yeah. Which, anyway. Next. But, <laughs> but I think a more interesting athlete, um, 
if you've heard of her, is uh, Flojo. She, yeah. she was an American American sprinter back in the 1980s, I believe. And she was sort of like the Usain Bolt of um, women's athletics back then in the, the 100 metres. If you look at her record, it still stands today. It's like 0.13 seconds, I think, faster um, than the second fastest person on earth. It still stands to this day. Basically what she's, she's done, it blows what you're saying Bolt has done out of the water. It's absolutely phenomenal how fast she was able to run back then. So you're obviously very interested in athletics. Uh, more just just like athletes who are like well and truly at the top of their their game. So I'm I'm not like I'm not biased towards any particular sports, but I just find it fascinating when you look at these people who just stand out above the entire genetic pool of everyone else on this earth. Um, like what have they done? What have they been able to achieve? Why are they untouchable? It's a well, so it's it seems. certainly in my opinion the coolest title to have, like fastest man or fastest woman in the world. It's like some serious like swag to it 100 percent. all right we're on to question three that's another good answer the, the anti-berkman <laughs> yeah <will>. i'm <laughs> slow as a wet week um <laughs> all right <laughs> question three which movie or television character do you most resemble that is a brilliant question that i struggle to answer so I want to flip it back on to you guys. Oh, which, okay. what twist? Which movie or TV star do you, do you think I my most resemble? See, I didn't think deeply about this because I expected <laughs> you to have thought deeply about this. Yeah, for someone who listens to every episode, like surely every week on Friday, you're like, hey, who am I most like? Who am I most like? You know, he actually looks a but, bit like my cousin Hugh. Like, like. I mean, you haven't met my cousin. Met oh yeah, you have. Yeah. Um, no, nah, he's got a bit of he's got a bit of cousin Hugh about him. Hugh's not on TV though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a face for radio. Um, not not that you look that alike, but you know. Um, but you definitely um, have a face for radio. Too. <laughs> I'm battling. <laughs> Who do you reckon he looks like? Um, oh, I reckon there's a Simpsons character. Oh, my God, Instagram. Oh, Tell you what, we're gonna leave that pending. Right. Oh. We'll accept a late answer on that. Um, Alex is <laughs> Alex is deeply considering this. The fourth question's the best one. Your life's being yeah. made into a montage. You get to choose the music that it's set to. What do you choose? I was I was originally thinking like a score by like Hans Zimmer or someone like that who just make these epic tracks for these big blockbuster movies. Oh, fuck, just I, I enjoy it. Do you? Um, but, I'm going to interrupt your answer. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. On YouTube at the moment, I watch a lot of music content. And so I get yeah. ads for this music stuff. And somebody's been putting together like a YouTube classroom where they get they get like Dead Mouse and like TI and stuff on to run lessons on their genre. And they got Hans Zimmer doing lessons on like writing scores. I don't know if you've seen the ad, but it's great. He's like talking about music. He's sitting at a piano. And he's talking about how music is a dialogue and he plays this little phrase and it like doesn't resolve. And he's like, Ooh, it's a question. And then he plays another phrase and he says like a very dodgy question. And then he plays another phrase and it resolves. He's like, and there's an answer. And it's so funny. But when you actually listen to his music, there is that really like, like it's really good program music. It's designed to tell a story and like, and be conversational and interesting. He's brilliant, brilliant composer. 
Yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. The um, the other composer who I really like was, um, I think his name was John someone, I can't remember, John Williams maybe? Yeah, he does John like Williams, the, uh, Indiana yeah. Jones, Star Wars, yeah. all that. Yep. Yeah, that yep. yeah, he's but, amazing. But my answer would um, would actually be Daft Punk. Really? If I because I one I really like their their music. It was like sort of genre defining, I suppose, back in the back in its times. But also the soundtrack they did for Tron just blew me away. Yeah, I thought they absolutely hit that out of the park. It's sick, and just listening to it when you're like going on a, a cruise or something can just be I don't know it's an experience in itself. Crucial Tron related discussion while we're on it. Yep, Olivia Wilde was in Tron. You remember her? 10 out of 10. She, yeah, she I was, was going to say, she's so beautiful. Do you remember her in the OC oh, when she yes. played, she was that bartender Alex. who was by Alex. Alex. That's right. She was the hottest Alex I've ever seen by a mile. Easily. Second hottest. Second hottest, you reckon? She, yeah, I love Olivia. Hottest Wilde. female Alex. That movie, <laughs> hottest female athlete. Yeah, Alex. <laughs> Alex, yeah. <laughs> oh man, that movie had it all. It had Daft Punk, it had Olivia Wilde. Yep. Yeah, man, it was sick. Oh, anyway, that's all I had to say. Olivia Wilde, she's great. She could be my date for dinner, I think. That's that's a very very fair choice. Dan, but thank I'll you so much. If I said that. <laughs> yeah, you would. Be. Um, thank, you so, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure, and I've certainly learned a lot. For people who wanna who wanna follow you or learn more from you, or maybe people in Melbourne who'd like to have a consultation with you, where can they find yep. you? Yeah, so I, I consult uh, out of Melbourne Strength Culture. It's located in, in Moorabbin, which is in the southeast. Uh, you can follow me at Dan Gadisi Physio. So that's at D-A-N-G-O-D-E-A-S-S-I-P-H-Y-S-I-O-N, Physio. Um, that's my Instagram. Uh, my website will be coming up eventually within the next few months, pending some other businessy things. But just reach out to me on Instagram or through the Strength Culture page. Um, my also details are up on the Strength Culture website, so you can hit me up that way. Be happy to help out any way I can or answer any, any questions that this uh, discussion here might have might have sparked. Because I know it can be a bit confronting and controversial when you're not exposed to this new wave of of research that's really redefining what we do in the industry, both uh, performance and healthcare. And you've run seminars. I know you ran some seminars in Sydney um, last year. Have you got any intention yep. of doing some of them in the short term? Uh, certainly do. I'm not too sure how short or like late, later term in this, this year that will be. Um, but we're looking at holding potentially another like deadlift or squat or bench press sort of workshop with my boys, uh, Matt Stewart from Queensland, Tim Davies, Mr. PB himself. Um, he's also in Sydney and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Sweet. Also, Mate. there will be something with Congress, uh, later on this year, which will be really, really exciting. So stay tuned for strength coaches, Congress coming up. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I've learned a lot. Um, guys, I'm Will thank Berkman you. on Instagram. I'm at W.BergmanP2. I'm Alex Hayes at Alex Hayes underscore process. We'll talk to you next week.